Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections. I think talking about context and setting is really important. And in the Kairos retreat program, we often talk about the emotional trajectory of the retreatant. So the talk you give on the first night is going to be very different than the talk you give on the second day. The way you share and the vulnerability you choose to include is going to be different depending on the state that someone's in. And I think something really important when we think about retreat settings where we're asking vulnerability is, are we giving them the support before and after to be able to process challenging things if we're going to be putting challenging things out there? Welcome to Preach, a podcast from America Media on the art of Catholic preaching. I'm your host, Ricardo da Silva, a Jesuit priest from South Africa, associate editor at America Media, and associate pastor at the Church of St. Francis Xavier in New York. In each episode, we take you into the minds and hearts of the finest preachers in the Catholic Church. We listen to their homilies, learn what makes them great, and draw inspiration to keep preaching the good news. This week on Preach, we're joined by Sarah Hansman. Welcome to Preach, Sarah. Hi, Ricardo. It's so good to be here. It's wonderful to hear your voice. Sarah, you spent a number of years in the corporate world, but you decided to pursue your passion, and you're now a theology graduate at the Boston College School of Theology and Ministry. Tell me a little bit about your corporate experience and, you know, the shift. Yeah, so even though I grew up Catholic, I really came into my faith in my undergraduate years and ended up studying theology in the undergrad setting at a Jesuit institution actually at Boston College. And I had planned to do a year of service and go to divinity school. And then everyone in my life said, hey, are you sure you don't just like love going on retreats? And are you sure you actually want to do this? And perhaps it'd be best to get a real job. And so I did. And I went into the world of sales and it used a lot of my skills and I was good at it. And I did it for four years and I moved through a number of roles and it served me very well. And honestly, I hated it and I wanted to go back to divinity school every day. So it was a big trade-off of giving up the money and the, you know, check the box success. But I really felt called back into this space. So after a really a year or two of discernment, during which I did the 19th annotation, I decided to come back to the School of Theology and Ministry. But the number of years I had in the corporate space was really fun. So the 19th annotation is basically a form of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius that you do in daily life. We also share something in common, which you probably didn't know, but I myself worked in the marketing space for a number of years before becoming a Jesuit. And then it was my experience of ministry with people experiencing homelessness on the streets of Johannesburg that I was really drawn into my Jesuit vocation. When I think of being a young woman and a preacher in the Catholic space, 
I can feel imposter syndrome sometimes mm. preaching and trying to have my voice be heard. I actually draw on the skills that I had to build up and the confidence that I had to build up in the world of sales. Because in my my last sales job, I was working with only men who were 20 years older than me. And it took a lot of confidence to say, I have a voice and that voice deserves to be heard. And so people see my time in the corporate space and being in theology and think there's no overlap. But in fact, there's quite a bit. So I find it very fruitful. Tell us about the readings that you're preaching on. So I'm preaching on the first reading in the gospel. The first, Exodus 22, is really situated right after the Ten Commandments. And within this context of a great number of rules and laws to the Israelite people. But the section particularly is about welcoming the stranger, welcoming the outsider, and treating those people as family. And then the gospel reading, Matthew 22, is really short. And it's coming after we have a number of parables in the past few Sundays readings, but it's really short and it's a very well-known reading, the love commandment, as we call it, but the idea to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And what community do you have in mind as you're preaching? Yeah, so obviously I don't have my own parish And I did write with the America Media and Preach podcast listeners in mind, but really given my context in a Jesuit space, in an undergraduate space, I'm often thinking about young people and a really diverse group of young people who come from different walks of life, different angles, and different faith backgrounds. And given what I know about these young people, I'm often taking up questions of social justice and education, as these are areas that are really important to these people. Sarah, I've had a preview of your homily just in reading it. I can't wait to hear it live on Preach. We will now hear Sarah Hansman's homily for the 30th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Year A, especially recorded for Preach. If I'm being honest... When I pulled up the readings to prepare this reflection alone in my apartment, my response was verbal. Whoa. The Bible never fails to shock me with its continued relevance in our daily lives. There is always more truth to uncover and a new moment or context to be in dialogue with. But these readings feel particularly on the nose. Consider our first reading from Exodus. I would paraphrase it as this. You shall not mistreat the marginalized, the refugee, the stranger. Do not forget that you were once strangers yourselves in the land of Egypt. And God tells the reader, I will surely hear their cry. The cries of people are abundant today. The state of our world cries out as the number of migrants crossing the U.S. border grows by the day, as the mistreatment of our planet leads to climate refugees, and most recently, as violence and suffering reigns in Palestine and Israel all grappling with issues of place, of home, of neighbor, of dignity, and all with increasing polarization and division. And then we reach the gospel message, love your neighbor as yourself. This line is so oft repeated, so commonplace, that we can perhaps gloss over it. Yeah, yeah, I know that commandment. Short and simple, but simple doesn't mean easy. What might it look like to take this call seriously? For almost a year now, I have served at an all-male prison every week. And despite being a divinity school student, frequenting retreats, and constantly being in spiritual spaces, there is no place that brings me closer to God, to grace, and to the face of Jesus than this community of inmates I work with. 
Now, I don't pretend to know every aspect of the social dynamics at play in the culture of a prison, but there are many. Navigating the system is complex and dehumanizing. I do know that these men have shared how they are labeled Jesus freaks or weirdos and get flack every time they go to the chapel. But they put up with it because they describe the peace they feel in the chapel, the way they can let their guard down, the community they find. But I know it weighs on them. I know it's not easy to feel isolated in a space that is already full of so much grief and loneliness. Last week, we began a new program, and one of the men brought up that he was trying to spread the word and increase participation in our group. He let the guys know he wanted to invite one of the very few transgender individuals at the prison to join us. He was checking in to make sure people were comfortable with this. Fear arose first, and an inmate spoke up saying, we already get enough flack from everyone around us for going to the chapel. We know what they think about this person. I don't judge them, but I don't want to get any more heat for associating with them. If they show up, fine. I'm not going to kick them out, but I don't think we should be inviting them in. There was a long pause. Then another guy spoke up. What about the gospel? Don't we have to welcome the stranger? And then another. Let's not forget who we are. We are people who have made mistakes or landed here one way or another. We've been forgotten by everyone outside, and we know how bad it can be in here. Now, I don't know anything about this person, but imagine how much harder it is to be a trans woman in a men's prison. That takes courage. And if we can't welcome this person in, who will? A final guy said, you know, I'm about to be released in a week. I'm going to be trying to get a job, build community, and reintegrate all with a big target on my back that says I'm formerly incarcerated. I'm going to get labeled as a con, and I'm sure I'll be cast off without a second thought by most people. I'm scared. And all I can hope is that there are people out there loving enough to give me a chance, to welcome me in before they judge. So I think that's what we should do with this person. The inmate who initiated the conversation looked to the one who was concerned. He said, I hear you. I understand why this makes you nervous. I get that fear. And I want to make sure we're making decisions together. But I really think this is important. The conversation ended there. No decision was made final, and I imagine it will continue next week. But I was floored. Do not forget that you are one stranger yourself in the land of Egypt. Love your neighbor as yourself. I was witnessing these men live out this week's readings not out of excess or from a place of security, but from a place of exposure. The decision to welcome this person in had real implications for them. They were willing to put themselves in a state of vulnerability for someone they didn't know. And perhaps they wanted to wall off their community and make it as secure and self-protected as they could, but they chose against it. And with synodality so present in the Catholic world today, I couldn't help but feel I just witnessed synodality of the highest order. I saw them listen truly and share from their own lived experience. I saw them affirm the other before they spoke and not rush into a decision. I saw them walk with the Spirit. Now, these men would not identify as LGBTQ allies. Not out of hate. They just don't know much about the queer or trans communities. Some of these men have disturbingly been locked up for decades. The world has changed so much, and the issue does not impact their daily lives and they certainly have plenty of their own worries. But in this conversation, they recognize something that fear can often blind us to. Our liberation is bound up 
in that of our neighbors. I wonder if that's why today's gospel readings are so short. After multiple Sundays of parables and examples, this week we are left to our own imagination. Perhaps sometimes you don't need direct experience, detailed explanations, or the most up-to-date research to recognize the need for neighborly love. Perhaps you just need an openness to listen and empathize. This summer, I was a chaplain at Massachusetts General Hospital. And during our orientation, my supervisor was clear about the core ethos of chaplaincy. To do your job, to truly encounter patients, you must touch the part of you that knows something about their experience. May that be grief, fear, pain, or doubt. I grew anxious. I had never spent time in a hospital myself. And in the grand scheme of things, I've lived a very privileged life. Sure, I've had my challenges. We all do. But my suffering doesn't compare to the suffering of these patients. I told my supervisor this, and she didn't skip a beat. Whether you like it or not, Sarah, if you're willing, I promise that you know something about what they are feeling. You just have to be willing to go there. Ask yourself, what do I know about this feeling? Facilitating goodbyes during end of life or sitting with someone who's grappling with a new diagnosis, I knew I could not directly relate to their experience, but I do know what it's like to say goodbye. And I do know what it's like to be unsure of the road ahead. That's what I was asked to do with my patients. That's what these inmates did. And that's what this week's readings call us to. Do not forget that you were once strangers yourself in the land of Egypt. Love your neighbor as yourself. I consider the words commonly attributed to Lilla Watson, the Australian Aboriginal activist. If you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. What do you know about feeling on the outside? About being in a strange land? What do you know about feeling like an outcast? What do you know about what it feels like to suffer, to doubt, to grieve? In our increasingly globalized world where media can water down realities and feed us half-truths, it's easy to doubt what to say, what to do, and how to engage with justice issues that are so big, so complex, and so nuanced. It's easy to feel like you're better off staying silent or remaining neutral. Certainly, it is our job to self-educate, reach to the margins, and not be content with ignorance, particularly when considering identities where we hold power. As a white person, I must educate myself on racism in America and the biases I hold. As a Catholic, I must reflect on and listen to individuals on the ways that Catholicism has hurt, isolated, and wounded them. As a person as simply alive in today's world, I must not view the violence in Palestine and Israel in a vacuum. Yet it is a balance. We cannot wait for expertise or a perfect solution to get engaged. So as Jesus often does, he leaves us with more questions than answers. He subverts our own desire for exact directions or a defined path forward. He invites us to use our own imagination, to have a conversation, to listen to someone who we disagree with, to discern, who is my neighbor? So this week, I ask you, what do you know about being on the margins? And how can you use that to have courage in the face of fear, nuance in the face of half-truths, empathy in the face of indifference, courage in the face of despair, and justice in the face of oppression. Look inward, look around. Who is your neighbor? Amen. 
That was Sarah Hansman for Preach. After the break, I'll talk with Sarah about how her experience in the corporate world prepared her to take risks and practice vulnerability in preaching. Sarah, welcome back to Preach. Thank you so much. It's so fun to be here. As our audience knows, we record this ahead of time so that it can be released in time for preparation. And we're recording this as the Synod on Synodality has been meeting in Rome for this second part of their conversation around mission. And so much of that was, you know, people telling their stories, especially people ministering in the LGBTQ community and the experiences of women. And we've heard, you know, that there've been tears in the Synod Hall. And as you were preaching, I was thinking about this and sort of thinking about the power of narrative and story and really preaching from experience, not telling stories about yourself, but preaching from your experience of ministry. I wonder if you can talk me through, you know, how you came to the decision to include those examples in this homily. Yeah. So typically when I end up preaching, I read the readings sit with them for a moment. And my main form of prayer is actually journaling. So I will read the readings, I'll pause, and I will just do a free flow journal. Whatever is coming to mind, I will write things down. And whether it's anecdotes, whether it's feelings and thoughts, it's my way of connecting with what does the Spirit have to say or what does God have to say about this? And then I spend time reflecting before I really get down to writing. And for this one, I actually went on a run. I do this pretty often. I'm a big runner. So many of our preachers, that's kind of the fix is they really? go on a run and then they come back. Oh. Yeah, when I could go on a run, that's what I would do. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because I'll something will come into my mind and I'll stop and put it in my notes app and people will be like, what is that girl doing? But I'll go on a run and I'll just kind of let it all sink in and sit and see what comes up. And sometimes something immediately comes to mind and sometimes it doesn't. But with this week... When I said, I said, whoa, because this was just last week. This was a week ago today that this happened with these inmates. And it felt so powerful to me. I've been thinking about it all week. And just a perfect example of synodality. I decided to preach about it because I think it's so easy to welcome the stranger when you feel like you're in this place of security, when you feel safe, when you feel confident. But these were men who already have a target on their back, already are in this place of like real exposure. And we're saying to each other, I don't know about this person's story, but I want to know. And I need to think about what I know about being a stranger. So it felt so real. Given retreat contexts, I often do share from a more personal lens or at least more anecdotally, as I think it really helps connect and break down barriers with people. Your defense system gets down, and particularly talking about really fraught issues in the church, like the LGBTQ community, like women, or even my decision to bring up Israel-Palestine in this homily. I think personal story and testimony and anecdotes are such an important part of retreat culture because they allow you to think, I don't know that exact story, but I know what that feels like for me. And that bridges that connection. 
I mean, you really bring it all, right? I mean, you left nothing on the table. You went into politics within the church, politics within society, so many complex issues. You used the word earlier, vulnerability. The word that comes to mind as you've been speaking and as I'm thinking about this in the context of synodality is what Francis calls courage, right? Paresia. These are courageous conversations. As a preacher, how do you make that decision, where you go and where you don't go to protect yourself? Yeah, absolutely. It's a question I grapple with a lot. It's something I thought about with this homily in particular, but one I think about with every homily that I write and every time I preach. Talk us through this example in that case, right? You know, you said you thought about it, but this one yeah. to include this. So one is thinking a little bit about my audience. And I think the young people I engage with are so passionate about social justice and want to be challenged, want to be pushed, want to talk about these issues that I read these readings and all of these issues of the LGBTQ community, about our carceral system, about Israel-Palestine, all these situations and topics came to my mind. I imagine they are for our students too. And if I'm not preaching on them, if I'm not talking about them and being courageous, how am I expecting them to do that? And I imagine it would come to mind and then think, wow, they just ignored that. And I did struggle with it. But that's where narrative and personal story comes in. And that's where I talk about touch what's in you to connect with the other person. Because I do think something young people do not take too kindly is telling them what to think, what to do, or kind of looking down upon them. And so it's far less about here's where the church should be going regarding these issues or here's what you should think regarding these politics, but trying to build a bridge that says, here's someone's story and what do you know about what that feels like to be on the margins, to be isolated? And I think that can help make it more approachable for people and if they do feel differently, help them feel less attacked. Where did you learn these deep skills of, I think, empathy, courage, vulnerability? What in your experience would you attribute this to? Because I think I can speak frankly, so many of us as preachers who've been preaching for a number of years don't get there, right? And we haven't even spoken about your age, and I don't want to disclose your age, (laughs) But I'm presuming you're, you know, in your 20s. 27, yeah. And it's important because our audience can't see you. So, you know, as a 27-year-old, the depth and the maturity from where you are preaching, what do you think the skills are that are necessary that preachers can acquire? So I think that I very intentionally included the story about my hospital chaplaincy this summer because I think that is like a grounding principle I've more recently adopted Because in hospital chaplaincy, you actually rarely share your own experience. I'm giving personal anecdotes in this homily, but when I would sit at the bedside of patients, I'm rarely talking about myself. However, I was touching the emotion within me. And when I was speaking with the patient, it was from that place. So I think that's something that you can consider when preaching and something I consider is, do I want to talk about this? And how do I do it? And if I don't, how do I make sure I'm at least touching the emotion? I had a friend say recently, a young person listening to someone preach, if I hear another priest talk about chat GPT and their homily, I will walk out of church. And they were kidding, of course. I'm glad I haven't done that yet. (laughs) (laughs) 
they were kidding, but I think the point is one of connection that I think sometimes we can preach. And when we're trying to connect to young people, we try to pick like an anecdote or something that is like in young culture today. Gimmicky. It's gimmicky and it can feel like forced connection. As a preacher, you don't need to be able to be in the know on the slang or culture of young people. It's about connecting with personal stories. We shared a little bit about our corporate experience, right? Do you think there's skills there that you've brought into your preaching? Yeah, absolutely, Ricardo. So I think that, one, it's just courage of using your voice that I had to build up over time of, you mentioned my age, and I'm I'm not ashamed to hide my age, but I used to be. And I would have a lot of people make comments to me in sales because I was covering these multi-million, multi-billion dollar corporations. And the CIO would look at me and say, you're the age of my daughter or you're the age of my granddaughter. And that felt really intimidating. So some of it was just time after time again, building up the courage to use my voice. But I think of a specific time that I was in a strategy role and I was trying to build up the culture of my office, which was very different from retreat settings. It was throw a football around the office. We're all joking around. We're drinking beers. This is very sales bro culture. And I said, I'm going to run this retreat that's based off Brene Brown, who is a personal mentor of mine. And my boss said, okay, do it, but it's not on me. It's your decision if you want to do it. And I thought it was a great idea. I wanted to talk about values and our culture and be vulnerable. And I felt so good until the morning of, and I said, what the heck am I doing? I am going to get laughed out of the room. These men are not prepared to hear this. But I did it because I had to at that point. And I was shocked. They engaged so deeply and so vulnerably. And I think there is this thirst. There is this loneliness. I think we can think about young people and the way they're cast off as spiritual but not religious or kind of flippant about faith. But I think there's this deep loneliness and there's this deep desire for something more. And when you create a context or a space, whether that be in a retreat or whether that be in fellowship after a homily, where people can discuss authentically that is taken up so well. And that's what I found in my experience. Yeah, I mean, we talk about reading the room, but seldom do we talk about misreading the room, right? Like, I mean, you went in with a particular lens. You went in with the sense of, okay, how am I going to approach these guys and get into their bro culture? And it was turned on its head. It wasn't what you expected it to be. You need a lot of humility to accept that in the moment. Yeah, being in divinity school, humility has been like the guiding word. I guess humility and tension. But humility because I'm studying all these academic things and we're all trying to articulate, like, what is this? Like, what are we talking about? And there's posturing and there can be imposter syndrome and there's all these things. But at the end of the day, we're always failing and talking about God. We're always just reaching and we're always being called forth. And I think... I try to preach, I try to engage with a constant mind of humility that is saying, I don't know the answer, this is my best bet, and just trying to move with the Spirit in that sense. And I think that not only is helpful for me, but invites humility and invites connection from other people. Tell me how that plays into a retreat setting, right? I mean, 
going into a place where you are expecting people to be quite vulnerable, but both you and I know it takes a little while to get there, right? How do we break down barriers? And then maybe how can we extrapolate that into our homiletic practice in parishes? Yeah. I think talking about context and setting is really important. One of the programs I'm most involved with, Boston College's Kairos program, many of the folks who attend are not Catholic or even not faithful. They're coming because they get this opportunity to slow down, to reflect, and to engage with whatever they call the sacred. In the Kairos retreat program, we often talk about the emotional trajectory of the retreatant. So the talk you give on the first night is going to be very different than the talk you give on the second day. The way you share and the vulnerability you choose to include is going to be different depending on the state that someone's in. And I think something really important when we think about retreat settings where we're asking vulnerability is, are we giving them the support before and after to be able to process challenging things if we're going to be putting challenging things out there? So I do tend to offer from a more personal, vulnerable, challenging space in a retreat setting because I know we're here before. Usually there's a small group setting after to discuss. I know there's a wide support system that if something comes up for someone, they're given the space to do that. But I do think the timing is really important. And the way I would choose to preach on readings in a retreat setting on the third day of a retreat, when the retreatants are already in the space of openness and vulnerability is different than I would preach if I was in a standalone setting. And lastly, I think knowing everyone is coming from a different mindset. Some people go into retreats and are just all in and they're there and the barriers and the boundaries just drop automatically. And some people have a fine experience. It's okay. And I tell the leaders that I help prepare for retreats, that's okay. Everyone's going to get something different out of it. And I think with a homily, you can come in with a certain mindset and know that everyone's going to connect with a different piece because they're touching their own lived experience. Mm -hmm. I probably should have started with this question, but I'm going to end with it. <laughs> We've spoken about you preaching in a retreat setting, and I've seen you offer scriptural reflections at Boston College, and those are available online as well. Tell me, how did you grow as a preacher, right? How did you come to inhabit this vocation as a preacher, as a woman, and as a young person to spread the word of God? Yeah. It's been a process of growth, and it's been a process of coaching, and it's been a process of learning. I go to school with a bunch of Jesuits and priests and a bunch of amazing women who preach in settings that they can, and it's learning from them. But honestly, I don't think it's vulnerable if I know it's going to be accepted. I don't think it counts as vulnerability if I know that everyone's going to love this. And so I think my ability to preach has grown in my willingness to risk, I'm going to do this. It either might not be accepted or it might not be the best thing ever, but I'm going to do it and I'm going to try to keep a spirit of openness to get feedback. And so I think it's more of an orientation of being, a way of like living in a riskiness that has allowed me to grow in my preaching. And I know I have so much further to go. That's the humility of it. But I love it. And I love to get the chance to live out my faith by sharing about it. Talking about riskiness, how can pastors in their own parishes, right, without breaking the rules, but how can they risk voices like yours 
in front of their congregations. How do you think we can bring more voices like yours into our church? Yeah, I think I look at the School of Theology and Ministry and some of the opportunities they take both through scriptural reflections that are offered on social media or little bits and bites that happen after a liturgy to give women a voice and to put them on the altar. I also think there's a huge part that is asking women and listening to them and sharing their stories. I think my Jesuit, I call them my Jesuit brothers, but I think my Jesuit peers that I go to school with just by being in the classroom with us, learn so much about the woman experience in the church. And I think it's asking and listening and then taking any opportunity you can to put a woman or someone else who hasn't had their voices heard out there. Sarah, this has been a delight. Thank you. I hope that we will have more voices like yours. We're certainly highlighting them here on Preach. And I wish you all the best on the Kairos retreat that you're about to go on and in your future in ministry. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ricardo. Thank you for listening to Preach. You can find the readings and a link to the transcript for the homily in our show notes. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Compelling Preaching Initiative project of Lilly Endowment, Inc. Preach is produced by me and Maggie Van Dorn. Kevin Christopher Robles, Christine Lenahan, and Michael O'Brien offered production assistance. Frank Tucson is our audio engineer. He also designed the theme score and composed original music for the podcast. Sebastian Gomes is our executive producer. We recorded in the William J. Loeschitz studio in New York City. And if you've heard a great homily recently or know a great preacher you'd like to recommend for our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Just click the link in the show notes. You can also follow me on X, formerly Twitter, at RickDSSJ. That's R-I-C-D-S-S-J. And before you go, we're in the middle of the Synod on Synodality at the Vatican. And as you probably know by now, the America team is there. So we invite you to subscribe to America Magazine. Just go to americamagazine.org forward slash subscribe. And for $1 this month, you can get all our coverage from the Synod. Just visit the link in the show notes. For America Media, I'm Ricardo De Silva. Until next time, keep preaching the good news. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.